listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for October 2011. Today's episode is titled, A Biblical Worldview of Work. For most people, a large portion of their lives is devoted to work. The workplace is one of the major venues for walking out the reality of your worldview. Because your view of God defines your worldview, this means that your theology drives your view of work and therefore your effectiveness at work. Be diligent to learn and live a biblical worldview of work. Provide training for everyone in your organization based on a biblical worldview. Hire and retain people who either already practice biblical principles of work or can be trained to practice these principles. Through faithful, diligent biblical training of workers, you will build an excellent organization, one that glorifies God by delivering an excellent value proposition. Excellent value propositions are delivered by workers who practice a biblical worldview of work. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, A Biblical Worldview of Work. Well, good evening. Good to be with you guys. We're talking tonight about a biblical worldview of work. Does anybody here work? A little bit. Yeah? Does anybody perceive they're retired? Okay. Does anybody perceive they don't work? Okay, well, just, just trying to get perceptions out here. <laughs> no, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah, you're among friends. So this, this will be a good discussion. So you've been through, uh, you know, uh, basically 10 sessions. I assume you haven't done public policy yet, have you? That's next. So next week will be your, your final session. And uh, Paul will do that for you. So tonight we're going to focus on biblical worldview of work. And let me just read some scripture to you, and we'll talk briefly about these scripture. Uh, Colossians 1.18, it says, And he, referring to Christ, is the head of the body, the church. So it's very clear that Christ is building his church, and he characterizes it as a body to suggest an organic unity. A body is an organic unity. So... When you come to Christ, you become part of this organic unity we call the church. Now, as we think about the characteristics of the church, here's some other interesting things. Uh, In Colossians 2, verses 2 and 3, it's talking about Christ, and the mystery of God is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So as you think about life, you think about work, for example, what do you need to do work well? Don't you need wisdom and knowledge? If you don't have wisdom and knowledge, you're not going to be a very good worker. So this is a foundational concept of work is wisdom and knowledge. And so if we're going to have wisdom and knowledge, we need to start with Christ. Then another text here in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. It says this, uh, You will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of and foundation of truth. So again, as you're thinking about work, you not only need wisdom and knowledge, but you need true wisdom and knowledge, don't you? Not pseudo-wisdom and knowledge, which largely is what comes from the world. We need truth, the way God's universe works, the way God designed it to work. And when you begin to consider that God created everything, if we do believe he created everything, Is there anything that exists outside of his rules? Is there anything that can self-define its own rules? And I think you would quickly conclude that that makes no sense. 
If God created everything, he had to create all the rules. So when we try to self-define rules, what we're doing is creating dysfunctionality, which we're doing that a great deal in our public policy today because we're trying to redefine marriage. We've redefined when life starts. Okay, We've redefined what, uh, what is acceptable sexual relationships. These are kinds of things we're doing in our public policy that are creating problems for us, dysfunctionality. So likewise, in a workplace, if we try to redefine the rules of how the workplace is supposed to work, we're going to have dysfunctionality there. And finally, this text in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, this word work here is the Greek word ergon. Now, we're going to talk about that word a good bit tonight because that is the most common word for work in the Greek language. And that word appears over a hundred times in the New Testament. It's translated in different ways, and you're going to see that tonight. And what happens when you, when you have a dualistic mindset as a translator of Scripture, then you sometimes misinterpret that word. Because if you interpret it the way it's the Greek intended it, it doesn't fit your paradigm. See, most translators don't view work as anything of any significance. Work is for most of the, the biblical translators historically has been a necessary evil. It wasn't really something that had any divine significance. So they tended to not translate that word ergon, work. They would translate it deeds, good deeds. And so it made you think about, well, that's like going on mission trips or, you know, helping out at Sunday school or things like that. That's how they would view it. They didn't see it as work the way the Greeks meant it. So we'll talk a good bit about that. But what I want to focus on here is the, the relevance of Scripture. You know, if we lived 200 years ago when you were going to a university here, you know how you would probably be trained? And it didn't matter what you were majoring in. You would be trained in theology. You would be given a biblical worldview because they view that as a foundation for everything in life. So that was very consistent with this text here. They would say, okay, if you want to live life well in this universe, we start with Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for whatever his work assignment is. That's how they saw it, and that's really what this text is saying. So that means the Scripture should be the starting point for anything. You're going to be a doctor? You start with Scripture. You want to be an engineer? You start with Scripture. You want to be a scientist? You start with Scripture. You want to be a salesperson? You start with Scripture. You want to be a teacher? You start with Scripture. You want to be a good wife or a husband? You start with Scripture. It doesn't matter what you do. You have to start with a biblical worldview. Okay, so the responsibility of the church, and I've got a circle here with the word church in it. This is referring to the universal church. Now, the expressions of the universal church happen in local communities. We're here in a local expression of the universal church. We have the responsibility here in this local expression to project this truth to you in everything, particularly tonight, and we're thinking about the workplace. So the church is relevant to me as an individual. It's relevant to me as in my family. It's relevant to me in my work. It's relevant to me in the public policy and the government that we have to function in as a people. So Jesus Christ, as expressed through his church, is the core, the foundation of all truth, wisdom, and knowledge that we need 
to do life, to live life well. Tonight we're going to focus on the workplace. So let's begin with a little history. If you go back, say, to the Puritan time, which began at about 1550 to about 1650, about a hundred year period there, what you would have found is people that, that truly believed in a holistic biblical worldview. They lived and breathed Jesus Christ in everything they did. It didn't matter what they did vocationally. It was all centered and focused on Christ. And so that's the way Christianity largely was. Now, there were exceptions to that, but largely was up until the 18th century. And then what happened in the 18th century is we had the Great Awakening. Now, the Great Awakening introduced a truncated gospel. The truncated gospel is the gospel focused not on the kingdom of God, but on salvation. So the key is, okay, we only get you saved so you can go to heaven, you won't go to hell. That was the focal point. Now, the, the gospel of the kingdom is about the rule and reign of God on this earth. So they changed the gospel. Why did they change the gospel? Well, Nancy Piercy's done an outstanding job in her book called Total Truth of researching why this happened. And what, her, what she explained in her book was there were a number of young, energetic uh, preachers at that time that didn't want to follow the rules. And the rules then were basically you, you belonged to a denomination and you were assigned a, maybe a church in a small community and you were held accountable for what you did. And one of the things that you were supposed to do is to present great theologically sound sermons every week to really train the people in biblical thinking. So they literally wrote papers every week and when they presented their sermon, they read their sermon. There was no extemporaneous preaching or teaching like we know it today. In many ways, what I'm doing is extemporaneous, even though I do have an outline. I'm not reading it to you. I'm speaking from my heart as I'm following the outline. Well, they didn't do that. They would literally read the message. Well, these young preachers saw this paradigm. They saw the accountability to authority. They saw the rigid way in which sermons were delivered. They, they saw the expectation of a high level of theological thinking. And all the pastors were, the, were seminary trained. And they said, we don't want to do that. We don't want to be submitted. We don't want to do, read our sermons. We don't want to have to go to seminary. We don't want to have to be very theological. So they went out into the countryside and set up all of these revival uh, podiums, basically, in, in, in meadows, and they, they attracted the local rural community to come and listen to them preach. And they were trying to figure out, well, how do I get people to come to hear me preach? Because right down the way, 100 yards away, is another preacher, and across the way, another 200 yards away, is another preacher, and they have these little stands set up that they're preaching from. So they developed these tactics and techniques to draw people to come listen to them. And one of the things that developed from that was emotionalism. And identification that if you have an emotional experience, that's a sign of the Holy Spirit working in you to save you. So they developed these techniques. It was all about gathering a crowd to themselves. So this dysfunctionality led to a gospel that was focused on, on fear. Because now it's not about you, you coming to Christ so you can rule. It's you, you need to come to Christ or you're going to go to hell and burn. So that's what, that's what began to really affect the gospel message dramatically. Then in the 19th century, we have the Industrial Revolution coming along. And what that did was that changed how the culture lived. You know, for the first, if you believe in the, uh, the fairly new earth, you know, by this time we're approaching 6,000 years in existence. 
So for the majority of this time, the focus has been on rural living, agricultural living. People lived on farms, and they raised cattle and, and sheep and pigs, and they had gardens and all that, because food was their primary concern. When the Industrial Revolution came along, a lot of equipment had been developed that would enable them to now not have to, everybody didn't have to work on the farm, because now one person could do the work of ten with all this equipment. So... People began to move to the cities, and they started developing you know, companies and organizations to do different things. A big impetus to all this was the railroad. The railroad is arguably the largest, the, the first really big organization that, become nation, that became nationwide. Now, we had armies prior to that, but they were, they were pretty localized. Now, suddenly you have a sprawling railroad system, and all these people now scattered all over the country, and you have to manage these people. So how do you do that? Well, the Christian community was totally unprepared to address that, and so they didn't. And so when you leave something unaddressed, you leave a vacuum, what happens? Well, the enemy addresses it. And so here he comes with, you know, the management theory that was all built on the robber barons. Remember the robber barons? Robber barons were all about greed and money and using people and all that. And so that, that began to develop in the latter part of the 19th century. And what, what encouraged that was, again, we had a gospel that wasn't, wasn't directing us to the kingdom of God. And it was a very dualistic gospel. We viewed, well, basically, Christianity happens at church. It really doesn't happen in a workplace. And so the workplace is left to the enemy. So you can see the foundation is laid for the 20th century and we've had just continued disconnect between biblical Christianity and the workplace through the last 150 years. Now we seem to have the beginnings, possibly, of a change. There's beginning to be an awareness that this truncated gospel is an incomplete gospel. There's becoming an awareness that, that Christianity is relevant to the workplace. And granted, the awareness is pretty low level right now. We're still talking about things like businesses' missions which to me is, um, it, it kind of misses what the reality is. It's almost like, well, we're going to use business to evangelize. It's not, it's not saying we're going to build our businesses based on Christ. So we need to get to that point where Christ is the foundation, because that is the reality. Christ is the creator of all. He's the definer of truth and reality. Until we build on him, we're not building on a solid foundation. So don't use the marketplace for some evangelistic effort. Don't use it just to be ethical. Those are incomplete understandings of how the workplace is supposed to operate. So I think we've got an opportunity, and maybe over the next hundred years, the Holy Spirit will just explode this understanding. And if, if he does, it'll, do, it'll be dramatic changes to the workplace in a very positive way. So let's talk about some key questions about work. Does your work count? There are many Christians. You like that little picture? And that cute picture? The three dollar bill, right there. Well, that's because many Christians uh, do not believe that there is any redeeming value to work other than to make money. That's all they think it is. It's just a, it's a way to make money. It's all about money, and it's a way to keep yourself busy. It's a way to go do whatever you want to do when you want to do it, how you want to do it. Well, the question is, what did God intend by work? What is His worldview? What is His perspective about work? So let me just point a couple of texts out to you. Uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It said here that God says, let us make man in our image. This is, this is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit having an internal conversation, and we're getting to hear it. So they're saying, let us make man in our image. That is, man is to reflect us. Okay? More than any other creature, 
So in our likeness, and let them rule. You see, that's why we're here. You know, I grew up Baptist. I don't know if any of y'all did, but uh, some of you grew up Baptist. Uh, now, I may have totally misunderstood what I heard, what I thought I heard. <laughs> but what I thought I heard was Christianity was about becoming a Baptist. <laughs> and about getting people come to become Baptists. I mean, that's, that's what I thought I heard. And I thought Christianity was all about, you know, doing the things the Baptists did. You know, we come to Sunday school, we come to church, then we come back for training union, then we have visitation, and then we have missions, and then we have midweek service. You know, then you get a couple of days break, and then you do it again. And I thought, that's what Christianity is. I, I saw no connection between Christianity and anything else I did. That, that could be, I totally missed it. We offended any through here at Irenaeus. I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm just saying, I didn't get it. I didn't understand we were here. So you see, this is this is fundamentally here why we're here. We're here to rule. It's not so much that we're here to save people, although we will do that. It's not so much that we're here to go to church, although we will do that. It's we're here to rule. And there's no limit if you read the whole text that we don't have time to do that. But you see, it's talking about rule over everything. The whole earth, everything. There's nothing excluded here. Then in chapter 2, where he gives us a little more full explanation of the creation, particularly relative to man, he, he gives us some interesting insight as to what he meant by ruling. See, he says here that uh, no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work, you see that, to work the ground. Now, that's a very interesting word for work. This is the Hebrew word abad. Okay. Now, it means to work. It also has other meanings. In Psalm 2, verse 11, it's translated serve. And in Psalm 100, verse 2, it's translated worship. So here, intrinsic to work is the idea of worship and service. You see, this is the very first time the word work appears in Scripture. And it gives us a clue as to what God intended. You know, first, first appearances in Scripture are significant because they give us great guidance as to how. So, right here, right in the beginning, before the is a what? So, does your work count? Absolutely. It's how God created you to worship Him. One of the ways. So, is work a curse? There are many believe that work is a curse. It seems like this comes up every time I. I'm talking to anybody in depth about, about what a biblical worldview of work. This always seems to come up that many believe that work is a curse. The scripture says this, that sin was in the result How do you know that you are Christ? One of the things that John says is okay, but he's saying that you will continue to live in sin. 
unless I think that's the way to look at it. We want to validate somebody's profession. Growth and change, transformation. Believe It's just growing naturally, and there's no effort. It's just easy. And the basis to go and get kicked out of the garden. There's no to live. So you get consumed with, with providing food for yourself. You don't have time to focus on anything else. So I think the first 6,000 years been a testimony to this reality. And it's not as we study understanding we're not And how is it that maybe Jason had a photon photon can work together? On the park bench. How the reality. A lot of people have, you know, realize that God's revealed it to them. They think they came up with it. No, sorry, that isn't the way it works. God reveals that's that's now impacted by, which now makes our work more. 
difficult. You ever, you ever ask yourself, why is it that I build a house that begins all this stuff going on? That's sin. Why do you have defects in manufacturing? You have problems with people in that place. represents that called the challenges of Until you return, what you have now is the creation. I didn't know. I had no clue what. The Bible has so what we're here for, and we mostly miss it because we read it carefully. The Old Testament. You built their Christianity on the Old Testament. So if you don't understand the Old Testament, you're not going to understand the New Testament versus Christianity very well. So the Bible here doesn't creation. Physical reality is not about reality is important. If you think God called to what we call church work, then anybody called to workplace And so, many people live So, next question. Who Uh, 
this teaches you don't do that. Well, the next question, does he keep on breaking up and harrowing the soil? Well, the answer is, the implied answer is no, he doesn't do that. When he has leveled the surface, he tear away and scatter cumin. One way, scattering is another way. plant in the ground and put soil over it, like potatoes. You put them in the ground. Okay? So there's a difference here in how you, you sow or you scatter various, various seeds. Does he not plant wheat in its place, barley in its plot, and spelt in its field? You see, there's, there's an order here to how God wants farming to be done. And notice that what he says next. His God instructs him and teaches him the right way. Now, do you think about God teaching a farmer how to farm? Do you think about God teaching a salesman how to sell? Do you think about God teaching a manager how to manage? Or a teacher how to teach? You know, or you know, so a, a scientist how to do research like Charles Towns? We don't think about that, do we? Because we don't make this connection that God is engaged in his creation. He values it. In fact... If we really understood what Genesis is saying, we would, we would be amazed, I think, because Genesis is saying God made this physical universe, and he declared it very good. Not just good, but very good. And he made us, he says, I want you to go rule it. You go out there and you multiply, you expand on it, and you go and you bring dominion on it. You, bring, you master it. You understand it, and you bring it all this wonderful technology I have built into the universe. You bring it under your, your control so that you can rule my universe the way I want you to. See, so that makes work extremely valuable. Well, let's read on here. Caraway is not, he's, now he's going to get into how you harvest, how you produce product. He, it's not just how you sow, it's how you also harvest produce the product. He said, Caraway is not threshed with a sledge. Nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. Cartwheel is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a stick. Does anybody understand all that? We're not farmers, are we? You know, I'm, I'm waiting to talk to a real farmer that, and say, okay, well, help me understand this text, because I know he'll have some insight into this that I'm not seeing. It goes on, grain must be ground to make bread. Well, that's interesting. I mean, that's kind of like, well, that's obvious. Well, it wasn't always obvious. It's obvious because we have the benefit of looking back, and we have the benefit of growing up and having Mrs. Baird's bread, right? So, but there was a time when that wasn't obvious. He, God taught people, and then they passed that knowledge on to us. So one does not go on threshing it forever. Though he drives the wheels over his threshing, of his threshing cart over it, his horses do not grind it. All this comes from the Lord Almighty Wonderful in counsel and magnificent in wisdom. Wow. Wisdom is the skill to live well in God's universe. And he's saying he is the source of that wisdom. He teaches the farmer how to farm from the planting to the harvesting to the producing of products, the whole thing. If he does it for the farmers, does he do it for the fishermen? Does he do it for the teacher? Does he teach the teacher? Does he do it for the salesman? Does it do for the person that's manufacturing a product or the person that's distributing a product or 
the engineer, the technical person? Does he, does he lay out all these rules? Well, I think he does. I think this is a picture that God made all the rules for the workplace and how it's supposed to function. Here's a quote from a Christianity Today article that, from Martin Luther. Martin Luther is one of the more recent pioneers of thinking of a holistic worldview relative to work. He says this, The works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman who went about her house but that all works are measured before God by faith alone. Meaning, the measure of your significance is the measure of that you're doing what God told you to do. You're doing what He's called you to do it by faith. That's value to God. Bring the rule and reign of God into your jurisdiction. A couple of texts here. Just three, one, and two. It, it gives you, it kind of takes you up into the heavenlies. It almost like, well, just, I'm going to disconnect from all of this physical world and just enjoy the presence of God and what he is all about. Well, then you would be missing what the text is saying. But in verse 17, driving home, what he's trying to drive. Verses 1 through 16 are driving to verse 17. And the verse 17 says, and what do you do? Whether in word or deed, this is another place where they have mistranslated ergon, because that word ergon refers to all kinds of work. So think of it as word and work. And I'm going to use the word ergon. That's the, the Greek word for all kinds of work activities. Word or Way that we represent Christ. Okay, this guy work assignments. Do you have assignments? Specific assignment. Ephesians two ten. Now most of us know Ephesians two eight and nine, don't we? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and not, not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We know that? Yeah. And we've all heard sermons on that and can quote those texts. And we know that's, that's an explanation of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We know it says that we do nothing, that our faith is a gift. If you express faith in Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit has regenerated you and powered you now to express faith in Christ which is why it makes no sense to ever try to intellectually persuade somebody about Christ. You present them the facts. You pray for them. You encourage them. The Holy Spirit must touch them or they'll never receive Christ. And if any of y'all tried to do the intellectual approach, I did that one with the college. If the Holy Spirit's not working with someone, he's not working with them. The timing isn't right. There's no reason where he's working. 
incredible radar going here looking. Where's the Father working? Oh, he's working there, so I'm going to go work there. And that's, that's what it is to walk by faith. It's looking where the Father's working, and you go do that. So when you see what salvation really is, it's really about this incredible gift that we have that we did nothing to deserve. Then you say, why did you save me? You see, as a Baptist, I thought I was saved so I didn't go to hell. I thought that was pretty much the answer. I didn't know there might be another answer. Now, granted, because we're saved, we're not going to go to hell. It's a wonderful thing. By the way, hell is not a permanent judgment. Did you know that? Did you know hell's going to be thrown in the lake of fire? The permanent judgment is the lake of fire. That's in Revelation chapter 20. So, we, it, yeah, I had a misunderstanding of even hell, but, you know, I, I was all messed up as a Baptist. I can't blame the Baptist. I have to take responsibility. But by the grace of God, I started reading Scripture, and I studying under Bible teachers, and I began to understand more clearly what Scripture had to say. So the question of why we're saved became a question for me. Why am I saved? What's the point? And so Ephesians 2.10 answers the question. You see, it says four. Four is like, it's telling you, okay, here's the reason why verses 8 and 9 are reality for you. God saved you for a reason. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, you see, we have this word works again. There's our Aragon. It's that word Aragon again. Again, the, the, the English translations have not been good here, sadly. And they have led us in thinking, when I used to read that verse, I used to think it was talking about being a good boy scout. A good boy was what scouts did. You know, boy scouts, need old lady across the street, and, you know, somebody in need, help them out, you know, a little first aid or whatever. Those were good deeds. I did not perceive of good deeds having anything to do with work, with what I did to, to advance the kingdom of God in the workplace. Well, this is what he's saying. He says, you've been created specifically by God, and you've been saved by God to do specific works that he wants you to do in a specific context that he wants to set you. This word here for good works is because Well, because in the Greek language, there are two words that are translated in English. And Matthew 7, 17, in the same verse, are two words. So we can contrast and see what the differences are. So look what it says. It's like, it says, likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. Matthew 7, 17. Every good tree bears good fruit. Well, a good piece of fruit, how do you get a good piece of fruit? So the, the agathos tree is required to produce the So you can see the agathos is referring to the of what is good and healthy and wholesome and lines up with God, and when it produces something that's good and healthy and wholesome. So that's the difference between the two words. So here we have in Ephesians 2.10, agathos ergon. It's saying for you to do what you're created to do, you have to be by nature good. You have to be walking in the power of the Spirit, walking in faith, doing what you're called to do. 
You see what he's saying here? Work is a divine calling. You have to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's as important as anything. One of the things that I, I, I guess I cringe a little bit about is um, I just went on a trip to Hong Kong. And I so appreciate all the people that prayed for me. more important than you doing what you're calling to do. So I have a little bit of a check about making a big deal out about praying for people that go on these trips. I think trips are fun. Teach as you are. That's agathos ergon. It's a different venue, different people, but it's the same significance the same importance to God. So we need to be, take that seriously. I want my, my wife to private school. She does her agathos her country. She worked in a public school. That would be important. You see, all of them are because they all count in the kingdom. So we are, we are saved by God. Execute his by ruling all he's he's orchestrating the events. Have you ever noticed that that God sets things? I'm amazed if I look back on my when I was in school, at the time, the Vietnam War was heavy, and I mean, God works things so that I
is important and we want to honor Everything. Got or good, good. have some What God has put in SLA.
eyes just kind of open. Give me a ten. How well? One of the thinking that's. So you can God gave it to you. But that's the big clue. So I well, you know, I'm good at that. When I was in China, the what God has called you to. Okay, did you see the picture? Necessary. Natural father, he wouldn't father to say. So he could develop and to add the thing. the other fathers so that the, the son told him what Let me encourage you. And
looking for is there. You built the character. You have enough and you've got a affirming you're lined up You go through the when I was studying science, we always, you know, had our which gave the theory.
Reading on a few verses. I'm working. And this particular work assignment, I work for him. And my human bosses are just delegated authority under him. Ultimately, i got to give account to him. So I want to work in the name of the Lord Jesus in everything I do. So this is the work ethic. Several years ago, uh, I think most of you know I'm a business consultant, and um, what I did is I actually uh, produced a stamp with this, uh, this in the name of the Lord Jesus on it. It actually said, this work performed in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then Colossians 3.17 on it. And that was their Christmas gift. I gave them a link pad and a stamp. I said, you put this on your desk. Now, you can use it figured, literally if you want. Some of you may know Larry Rosenbaum. He's a, he's a handyman. He does use it. When he produces a, an invoice, he'll turn around and stamp it with that stamp, this work done in the name of the Lord Jesus. And others, you know, don't want to literally do that. I said, fine, figuratively do it. Put it on your desk, and you mentally think every conversation, every interaction, every planning session, every letter, everything you do, every email, it doesn't matter, in the name of the Lord Jesus. So that's, that was a visual aid I gave them to help them think at that level and develop a biblical work ethic. Now, there's another text that really speaks to what a biblical work ethic is. And this is probably one of the most pregnant texts that I know of in Scripture that deals with this. This is Titus 2, 9 and 10. Now, the context of this text is Paul is writing to his spiritual son, Titus, and explaining to him that he needs to go to Crete and he needs to fix things in Crete. There are things really out of order with the Christian community in Crete. They don't understand what it is to really walk with God and to live consistent with the teachings of Scripture. And, of course, they use the term sound doctrine. I know that sound doctrine sometimes turns people off. Please don't let it turn you off. There's nothing wrong with the term sound doctrine. It refers to truth, it, wisdom, living according to a biblical worldview. So he's going through, in chapter 2 of Titus, through a litany of things that should be done. He talks about how... Young men and old men interact. He talks about how young women and older women interact. And now he's going to talk about work, the workplace. Now, in the Roman culture, the Roman citizens did not work. So all the work was done by the slaves. So when you talk about teach slaves, you're talking about the workers. Okay? So he's talking about the workplace. He says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, 
to try to please them, not to, to not talk back to them, to not steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Now let's break this thing down and see what it says. Okay, First of all, the slaves are the workers in the first century. Secondly, he tells you how to be subject to your masters and everything. The first, There are three elements here he points out. The first thing you do is to not to try to please them. Now, again, the, the, the English translation is not really good, so I'm going to help you out here. This is a, a Greek word that means to be, to exist, to happen, to be present. It implies showing up in every regard, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Now, how many of you have worked in the workplace and you said to so-and-so, that guy's here but not here? Or that guy's out to lunch? Okay. Well, that means he's not all there. He's, something's off. He's not, he's not with it. Well, the first element in being subject to the bosses, the masters, is to be there totally. In every way, I am there. I'm not distracted. I'm not thinking about anything else. I am here to do what the master has called me to do. So that's the first element of a biblical worldview of work. The next element here is to not talk back to them. Now, again, that's not a great translation, so let's just break this down. This is the Greek word anti-lego. Anti means against, and lego comes from logos, which is word. It's to speak a word against. So <clears throat> the implication here is to show up with a good heart as evidenced by your tongue. Now, how do you get that? Well, you get that because... The mouth reflects the heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you, want, you listen to people, and you can see their heart. So what he's saying is, hey, pay attention to what you're saying. The only way you're going to use your tongue correctly is you need to be in fellowship with me. You need to have your heart right with me. You need to be walking with me, and then the tongue will reflect that reality. So... If you're going to be a great worker, you've got to go in the power of the Spirit. You've got to be in fellowship with the Lord. You've got to be walking with Him, or you'll never be a great worker. You see the spiritual reality in all this? I mean, it's, it's there, and we just have missed it, largely because we haven't seen how God values work. Well, that's the second element. The third element here is to not steal from them. And I know what you're saying. I don't steal a thing. I'm real honest. Well, it's deeper than that. So... This is another word, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but it's, it means to set apart, to separate or to divide, to set apart or separate from one, for oneself. It means to embezzle, withdraw covertly. So it implies that we're supposed to subordinate our personal agenda to the good of the organization. We're not there to serve ourselves. We're there to serve the organization. So how many of you heard people say, what's in it for me? Huh? I mean, that's a real common thing. What's in it for me? That's a very narcissistic approach to reality. Very common today. That's not a biblical approach. I was, a few years ago, I was uh, in South Africa on a speaking engagement, and there was uh, a man that was part of our group. I was part of a team, and um, I didn't get to pick my team. I was just invited, and so I went. So there's one guy on the team that uh, you could tell uh, he was all about what's in it for me. And he didn't, no hard, no no bones about it, didn't hold him back. He talked about it, and he talked about that's how you appeal to people. You, you, know, you appeal to this, what's in it for you. I said, why don't you challenge that? Why don't you approach it with a biblical perspective? Well, he had 
he had no way to connect to that. And that's sadly the way most people are. And this, this guy's a Bible teacher. He's a Bible teacher out there teaching things like this. Well, Scripture says what we need to be is to die to self to do the will of the Master. He's put us in this organization. He wants us to serve him with excellence. And that means my agenda doesn't mean anything. It's out the door. It's all about what he wants to do here in this place. So what happens if you have a person that's working like this? They're totally there. They show up in fellowship, walking in the Spirit, and they subordinate their agenda to the good of the whole. What do you have here? Don't you have a trustworthy worker? Someone you trust? Someone you, you would have confidence in? Someone you know you could build with? Yeah, that's what you have. You have someone that you can really, you can walk with. You can, you can build an organization with people like that. Because you know, you know you can count on them. They're your go-to workers. Every organization has got their go-to workers. And you know, you know how you find out your go-to workers? Just let the economy get soft. And you'll see who stays and who gets laid off. The go-to workers, gets, they stay. By the way, let me suggest this. And I don't mean to be critical or harsh at all, but why aren't the Christians the go-to workers? Why do we have so many that are out of work? You ever wondered that? Maybe we don't have a biblical worldview of work. Maybe that's one of the things we need to be teaching. Maybe instead of praying that everybody will get jobs, maybe we'll pray that they get a biblical worldview of work so when they get that next job, they'll become that go-to worker. That'd be a different way, wouldn't it? You see, this is we've got to change our thinking, and we've got to change our prayers. We can't... If somebody comes and prays, asks you to pray that they get a job, do you think that's a good prayer? They're out of a job for a reason. Now, if they don't get transformed, they just go and find another job, what's going to happen there? They're probably going to have the same problem. You know, you've got to get transformed. Learn, why is it that this has happened? What is the Holy Spirit saying to me? How do I need to change so that when I get my next assignment, you know, the same thing doesn't happen? See, we, what we do is we get into enabling. Oh, you need a job? We're going to pray for you that you get a job. You know, most of you know we have Marketplace Prayer on Friday morning, and I encourage all of you to come if you can. But one of the great things that we do is we have committed to praying biblical prayers. People will submit all kinds of prayer requests to us. They'll say, um, well, I, I need money. Well, we'll say, well, we don't pray for money. The reason we don't pray for money is because Scripture says that if you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, your needs will be met. So we're going to pray that you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Because that's the real root issue. Money is just a symptom. They'll look at us and say, well, don't pray for me then. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Or somebody will come up and they'll say, man, i got tough circumstances. Man, it's really tough. Would you pray that God will just get me out of these circumstances? And we'll say, well, I'm sorry, we don't pray that way. We believe that God's orchestrated those circumstances. So we're going to pray that you don't get delivered from, but you grow through them. That's how we're going to pray. Okay? Or they come and say, look, uh, I need a job. You know, I, just, I just need a job. And then we say, well, we don't really pray for jobs. What we pray for is assignments. We believe God has an assignment for you. And we're going to pray that you find that assignment and you become a, a worker with a biblical worldview. You ought to see the eyes that look at us sometimes. What? Because we're not thinking biblically about work. And so we don't approach it biblically. So I'm going to encourage you. Let's begin to grab a hold of this truth. 
So tr these go-to workers here are trusted workers. Now look what else happens here. So what you, you whenever you are trying to walk with God, even if you don't tell anybody, people know it. People size you up. They find they 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 look at maybe they got a Bible on your desk or maybe they notice that that you go to church or whatever. Maybe they notice you don't curse or whatever. There's something that they notice. They size you up as being a Christian, and so they're watching what you do. When you function like this and become a go-to worker, what it means is that in every way you make the teaching about God of our Savior attractive. So what happens is the biblical worldview that they see in you now becomes attractive. It's very interesting. This word for attractive is the word cosmeo. It's the word we get cosmetic from. It means you put lipstick on God. He put makeup on God. You make God look good because of what you have. How many of you have seen people that profess to be Christians and were lousy workers? You know, there's so many of those out there. There are people that talk about, I'll never hire Christians. I've got a friend of mine that says, you know, he, he calls himself a member of the Hire a Heathen Club. Okay, meaning I don't want to hire anybody for us to be a Christian because they're lousy workers, which is a horrible testimony to the cause of Christ. I don't see anybody coming to Christ through lousy workers. But I do see people drawn to Christ when they see somebody working at a level nobody else is working at. They want to know, why is it that you're working at that level? Why is it that you're not concerned about yourself? Why is it that you sacrifice for the good of the organization? What, what, what empowers you? What empowers me is the Holy Spirit that comes through Jesus Christ. So now you have an opportunity to bear witness to the reality, the power of the gospel at work to transform you as a worker. That's what, that's what draws people to Christ. That's how you evangelize in the workplace. And we think, well, gee, it's about passing out tracts and trying to find an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody. No, live it. Live it. There's nothing more powerful than living it. Okay. I want to press in here. What's the fruit of all this? What's the fruit or the value of work? Well, first of all, it's obedience to the creation mandate. What legitimizes work is that we've been called to work. What legitimizes work is what we were created to do. What makes business significant, what makes work significant, is that it's a way that we obey the creation mandate. Secondly, the workplace is a place for maturity and promotion. There's probably no place that's going to be more effective in helping you grow up in Christ than the workplace. It's going to challenge you at every core. It's going to force you to die to self. It's going to force you to forgive and turn the other cheek. It's going to force you to go the extra mile. It's going to force you to put aside your agenda. It's going to force you to learn how to really sacrificially love other people. It's going to force you how to learn how to serve, be a servant leader. That's, that's what you learn in the workplace. You know, one of, one of my observations is this just anecdotal, and I could be totally wrong, but I have seen a number of cases where people have not worked for various reasons. Maybe they inherited money or, you know, they were, their spouse didn't want them to work or whatever, so they didn't work. And many times what I've seen there is those people have not grown up. They have not matured well. They haven't had the challenge of really flexing their spiritual muscles to grow. You know, if you're going to build yourself physically, strong, you have to work the muscles. Well, if you're going to grow spiritually, you have to work the muscles. And the way we grow up spiritually is to a large degree in the workplace. And I know some of you are saying, well, how about marriage? Yeah, marriage is a big part of it too. 
But the workplace is a big challenge. We work there eight to ten hours, five days, sometimes six days a week. That's where the Holy Spirit's going to hone us and develop us and mature us. Workplace is a means for provision. You see, the way God designed it, he is our provider and our source, but he's chosen to use work as the means by which he does it. Uh, this is called mediating grace. You remember the term mediating grace? The way God keeps you alive is he uses oxygen in your lungs. Okay, He is your life, but he's chosen to do it through the mediating grace of oxygen. The way he chooses to keep you alive is through, through food. He provides you food. You have to eat it. You can't just sit there and say, well, Lord, feed me. You know, he's going to say, no, you go plant a garden, and you, you, t- you harvest the garden, and you prepare the food, and you eat it. That's my mediating grace to keep you alive. So this God works through mediating grace. So when you get that, you understand that provision is a byproduct of obedience to God. Now here's a text in Titus 3, verse 14. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is ergon. I loved it here. I didn't know this was, until this afternoon, I didn't know that that translation was that far off. But Doing what is actually the word ergon. Doing the ergon that God's created you to do, and it's talking about kalos. Instead of that which is intrinsically good, the kalos ergon is the good fruit. Okay? So now he's talking about devoting yourself to the kalos ergon, bearing the good fruit, in order that you may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. The word unproductive is a karpos. Carpos is fruit, and A is negative, meaning no. You put them together, it's no fruit. So this is the way you live fruitful lives, is to go do the Kalos Aragon that God has called you to do. Isn't that beautiful God system? It's, it's rich. And finally, evangelism. The most genuine and effective witness is a great worker, a biblical worker, a Titus 2, 9, and 10 worker. you got somebody like that, you have an incredible testimony to Jesus Christ in the workplace. And let me say this, no pastor will have the opportunity that you have in your workplace. Never happened. Sadly, in our culture today, pastors are discounted, minimized. If I'm sitting at lunch, we're talking with a client or something, and the client doesn't know the Lord, but some, some pastor walks up and he knows it's a pastor, what happens? Conversation totally changes. We go to a level of unreality. You know, it's unbelievable. <laughs> and once the pastor leaves, we can get back to reality again. Okay? The good, the bad, the ugly, whatever it is. Well, that's sadly the way it is. And so God is assigned to us. Those of us that are called to the workplace, it is our field to work. And if we're going to work it, we work it by being great workers. That's how we evangelize. That's how we bear witness to who Christ is and how he's transformed us. So may God give us the grace to walk this out well in Jesus' name. Well, Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for the richness of your word, the power of the workplace to be your testimony to Jesus Christ. Thank you that you that all vocations count because you created each one of us for a specific purpose, specific work assignments that you created for us to do. Give us the grace to learn to do them well for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.